Your research, broadly speaking, looks at the intersection between the brain and the immune system. My understanding is that that connection is relatively recent. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it. And uh, so let's pretend you're talking to (laughs) someone with a ninth grade understanding of science and hypothetically, let's call this person the president of UVA. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Ryan, president of the University of Virginia, and I'd like to welcome all of you to another episode of Inside UVA. This podcast is a chance for me to speak with some of the amazing people at the university and to learn more about what they do and who they are. My hope is that listeners will ultimately have a better understanding of how UVA works and a deeper appreciation of the remarkably talented and dedicated people who make UVA the institution it is. I'm joined today by Dr. John Lukens, Associate Professor of Neuroscience and Principal Investigator of the Lukens Laboratory. Dr. Lukens is an expert immunologist and neuroscientist. He's dedicated his career to improving our understanding of how the immune system can contribute to the development or prevention of neurological disease. His laboratory is engaged in important research around highly complex neurological diseases, such as ALS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and others, helping to improve our ability to treat these diseases. Dr. Lukens received his BS from the University of Richmond and his PhD from the University of Virginia. He is an eminent researcher, scholar, and educator, as well as an outstanding mentor, husband, and father. And today, we are fortunate to have him on the podcast. Dr. Lukens, thanks for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Excited to be here, Jim. Is it okay if I call you John? Yeah, if it's okay if I call you Jim. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Sir (laughs) works as well. Um, Okay. (laughs) So I understand you're a Philly guy. Did you grow up right in the city or outside of Philadelphia? Yeah. So we spent my first couple of years in Roxborough, which is just west of the, it's a borough in the city. And then we moved out to an area called uh, Plymouth White Marsh. So it's just like a mile outside of, of the city. Eagles fan, Phillies fan? Got gotta be. I I'm, mean, there's, there's no other that. way. I... <laughs> no, yeah, no. Philly, Philly's great. Uh, the fans are passionate. It's a, uh, it's just an amazing place to have grown up. I uh, enjoyed every second of it, and you know, my kids now, even though they're they're diehard Cavs fans, UVA second comes uh, all Philly sports. Right. Well, I'll forgive you as a Giants fan. You know, we <laughs> root for our hometown teams. So yeah. did you go to the Jersey Shore as a kid? Oh, yeah. Every summer. Um, so that's where, you know, I pretty much spent most of my family vacation. So we would go to Ocean City. And then um, I was actually a lifeguard in Seattle City one summer. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So and then, yeah, especially during high school, we spent our summers there. Um, I worked as a, a chef one year at one of the breakfast places. And uh, yeah, a lot of fantastic memories you know, going down to the Jersey shore with my parents, extended family and brothers and sisters. And we take our kids there. We try to go up to Philly once a year. We do a Phillies game. We usually get in a soccer game and then we do day trips to, to Ocean City. And so am I right? You're a first generation college student? Yes, that's correct. And how did you end up at Richmond from Philadelphia? Yeah. So it just so happened. One of the the guys that I played ice hockey with in, in high school went there. He was a year ahead of me and he was somebody I looked up to. Uh, you know, he, I went to advice to him about like AP bio and AP chemistry. And 
Um, so he kind of put me onto it. And then I went there and absolutely loved it in the sense, you know, very small uh, classroom sizes and a real emphasis on research. Um, and you can get involved in research like straight out of the gate. It was my first semester. I was already in the lab, hmm. had a really strong connection with my mentor there. It was a it was a great place. Um, yeah. And when did you realize that you were interested in science? Really young? Did it happen in high school or college? Or yeah, it it happened in high school. You know, then I was, you know, I just really got into biology and chemistry and loved the idea of wanting to help people get better. I just was fascinated and driven to find, you know, treatments and novel ways to to help people with devastating ailments, and that was kind of the passion. Mm-hmm. I liked kind of the problem solving and the unknown. Um, And especially in the case of biology, you know, looking back, there's been quite a revolution in terms of technology um, in genetics and, and uh, big data. And it's, uh, it's amazing how far, you know, research has come and just the opportunity to make a difference was kind of what drove me to science and research. And did you go into college thinking that you wanted to get a PhD or did that decision occur while you were in college? Yeah. So that, that happened towards the end of undergrad. I I went in uh, thinking that I went to do undergraduate education Yeah, and um, you know, as I got into the lab and spent a couple summers in the lab, I just fell in love with the opportunity to, to, I mean, it's just an amazing feeling to, to get a piece of data and, and realize you're, might be one of the only people in the world at that moment that knows that thing. And that mm-hmm. I found that to be very, you know, it drew me in further. And I, I liked, you know, how fast paced it was and, you know, in terms of publishing and I saw, you know, I guess a better opportunity in terms of using my skills to go to uh, research and to get, you know, to maybe do something more in, in science. I actually, when I came into college, I was doing organic chemistry research and um, you know, I, I loved it. Like I said, my mentor, you know, we played softball or softball during the summer and I, you know, his, his name is John Gupton, but he's, you know, he, in a lot of ways, he's how I kind of model my mentoring style. He was just, you know, really got to know all of his trainees and try, you know, treated us like family, um, you know, both, you know, the good and the bad in, in the sense of pushing us to be better every yeah. day, but also, you know, putting his arm around us when, you know, the experiments didn't work the way we wanted. And, um, you know, I didn't take immunology into my last year of undergrad. And what drew me to immunology was the fact that it's, it's really hard to find a human disease where immunology doesn't play a major role, if not right. the underlying role. You know, everything from cancer, you know, how the immune system helps to remove tumors to infectious disease, autoimmune disease. And, you know, even in the last couple of years, you know, we've come to know that it's really critical um, in maintaining health of the brain, too. Yeah. So I want to come back to that. Let me just ask you, what drew you to UVA? Yeah. So I really connected with the PIs that I met with um, Mm. during my interview weekend. Um, at the time, uh, there was a new immunology center, the Byrne Carter Immunology Center, that was kind of just getting off the ground. There were a lot of, of new PIs that had really exciting projects. And, you know, kind of getting back to the Philly thing, uh, the center director, Tom Bracciali, he was he grew up in South Philly, first generation. Okay. 
And um, he, I could tell that, you know, he was really invested in me as a person and also a scientist. And it just felt, it felt like home. You know, I, I've always kind of approached where I went in terms of schooling, like, you know, it's it's more than just where you're gonna you learn facts. It's also gonna be your home for those years, right. and you want to have people around you that, you know, are really gonna invest in you and your development. And definitely felt that way with Tom and the others in that new immunology center. Yeah. So going to your research, so mm -hmm. your research, broadly speaking, looks at the intersection between the brain and the immune system, um, and my understanding is that that connection is relatively recent. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it, why it took so long for people to <laughs> understand the connection and why it's important. And you might, uh, so um, let's pretend you're talking to someone with a ninth grade understanding of science and hypothetically, let's call this person the president of UVA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. For the longest time, the kind of prevailing uh, paradigm has been that the brain is an immune privileged organ where it's separated from the immune response and there's very little communication. And, and the thought was, and, you know, I guess conceptually you could make a strong argument, you wouldn't want an immune response to be overactivated in the brain because you have these neurons that are important for stirring memories and also for controlling our movements and pretty much our everyday life. They're post-mitotic, meaning that they're not coming back. They're not going to be replaced. They're not like our See. skin cells that when you get an injury or you lose some, you get a replacement. So mm. this, this was kind of a simplistic idea. And there was also the, the fact that there was this fortress around the brain, which is called the blood-brain barrier. And this right. kind of was really difficult to get immune cells in. And so this, you know, lasted up until maybe like 10 to 20 years ago. And probably some people still kind of agree with it in some ways. But the real, I guess, thing that caused this paradigm to crumble was there was three real things. One of them... It's advancements in uh, neuroimaging. Mm -hmm. So um, as as we begin to look closer, we realize that most neurological disorders have activation of the immune system in the brain, and that mm. the activation of these immune cells in the brain, the more active they are, typically correlates with the severity of it and how much tissue loss has been there. Mm. And then the, the other thing, or the second thing that kind of led to this was advancements in genetics. You know, as we've, the technology has gotten better and it's gotten cheaper to do large scale genetic screens, we, we've come to realize that many of the genetic risk factors for things that we thought were purely neuronal were actually targeting the immune system. So if you look at Alzheimer's disease, the, the genome-wide association studies that have come out in the last 15 years most of the genes are immune genes or genes that are almost exclusively expressed by the one immune cell that that resides in the brain. Huh. And this this is kind of, um, you know, changed our thoughts on a potential role for the immune system. And then the third thing is, you know, something that was uh, kind of came out of UVA, actually. Um, and it's this idea of the role of the meninges. So there's this really thin membrane above our brain between our skull and the brain parenchyma. 
And typically, you know, when people did autopsies, they would cut the skulls off the brains and then peel it off. And what was peeled off sticking to the skull, which they threw in the trash can was the meninges. Um, and it's this, what we've come to know through discoveries that were made here at UVA is that this meningeal, this small little layer that people were throwing out um, in their autopsies is just filled with a massive composition of immune cells. Huh. And these immune cells can release factors that can coordinate the neurons to do certain things um, and to affect memory and anxiety and, and mood. And then the other thing was, was something that happened, I guess it was probably eight years ago while I was still here. It was discovered that the brain had lymphatics. Uh, so this drainage pathway that most other organs have and the brain was thought not to have. And that, that would kind of add it to the immune privilege idea that was being kind of touted around. And this is the major way that you get waste out of organs. Right. Um, but it, but it's also it's also the the communication between the organ and the immune system. Right. So those three things were the, what kind of tore down this incorrect paradigm. And it's been pretty recent and it's, you know, it's exciting in that sense because there's so much opportunity now. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, what does this open up? I mean, it's obviously an incredibly interesting thing to discover something fundamental about the brain and the immune system. Uh, but now that we know there is a connection and they're not completely separate, why is that significant? And, and what other questions are, are raised by that? Yes. So there's, you know, there's multiple things. So with the communication now, we know that we can take basically the fluid that's being drained through those lymphatics and we can profile it and we can we can say, are there neurotoxic material in there? How are the immune cells? And one of the biggest things, the limitations to treating a lot of neurological diseases is we don't have good biomarkers to say, let's intervene now. Mm. Um, and so most of the times when people have tried to intervene, it's been too late in the sense that what's lost already isn't going to come back. And um, this provides an opportunity to really, it's like a window into the brain where you don't have to be as invasive to go in and sample. Right. Um, and so that, that's been one thing. And then the immune system and the, the meninges are incredibly targetable in the sense that it's really hard to get things across the blood brain barrier. So that's a limitation, but in the immune system, you know, being in the periphery, it's, it's, it's much easier to target it. And we've had, you know, decades of advancements in terms of immunomodulatory drugs and treatments. I mean, you know, things like psoriasis as targeting the immune system. You know, if you look at multiple sclerosis, all of the drugs that are available for multiple sclerosis are targeting the, the immune system. So we, we kind of have a toolbox that we could deploy almost immediately. And um, it's a little bit less dangerous than say like perturbing a neuron um whereas you can tweak you can kind of fine tune the immune response and you don't have to worry about as much collateral damage of right. causing the neuron to burst or whatever so when you say targeting the immune system mm -hmm. uh this may be a silly question but am i right that the problem with the immune system is that sometimes in order to when it's reacting to something, it actually causes harm. 
rather than because it's i think a lay person including myself would think it's mm-hmm. really good that we have an immune system it fights off yep. calls but is it the case that sometimes in the process of fighting off something it actually causes more damage yeah that's that's correct uh you know immune system in pretty much every organ now is it's always a balance between the beneficial versus the detrimental and you know, this is really well appreciated in terms of viral infections of the lungs, where if you get too robust of an immune response, your your immune system is can cause too much damage as right. it's trying to clear the virus. Um, and then you obviously have breakdown in lung function and um, it's immunopathology that's driving a lot of the issues. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, you, you need your immune system there for tissue repair. Right. Um, and also to kind of corral and contain anything that's a danger, whether that's an infection or right. say something neurotoxic. So things like amyloid beta or alpha synuclein, which are the you know two drivers of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So it's it's really harnessing you know the good and the bad to find the sweet spot to unleash it in a beneficial way that, you know, is is the real sweet spot there. Right. So let me ask you a silly question. Why doesn't our immune system work better? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. Um, so with time, the, the biggest problem is with time, the immune system kind of breaks down, you know, mm. and, and this occurs, you know, oh, right. Yeah. And so basically they almost become functionally exhausted or mm-hmm. they get overloaded with neuronal debris that's bad. And then they don't, they're not as good at clearing um, the material. And then the alarm bells ring like, and they start releasing other factors that I aren't see. pro-inflammatory. So with a lot of the aging associated neurodegenerative disease, they reach a state of overcommitment, And basically they're just they can't keep up with the pathology. So you kind of need ways to rejuvenate them. And, and that's some of the things that we've been working on. And a, a similar thing kind of is present in cancer, um, whereas the immune system is really good at controlling cancers early on, and then it becomes functionally exhausted. Mm. And it can still it still knows that there's a tumor cell there and it can get engaged with it, but it can't release the payload that would kill that tumor. Interesting. And so um, that concept of rejuvenating that functional exhaustion is also what we're our lab and others are trying to do in terms of rejuvenating the the normal beneficial functions of say the cells in the brain that that typically protect our our brains. Talk a little bit about what you're working on now and any significant recent discoveries you've made in your lab? Yeah, yeah. So what we're working on now is we're really trying to understand what are the brakes and accelerators to turn up or turn down uh, these microglia. So these are the only immune cells that reside in the brain. And and these are the the cells that contain a lot of the risk factors for for most neurodegenerative diseases. And um, we've, we've been trying to identify various molecular uh, factors that that can boost their beneficial functions, mm. as well as turn them off. So work that was done by Hannah Enterfelt, who was a grad student in the lab, she's now moved on to do a postdoc at Stanford. She identified this molecule sick, uh, spleen tyrosine kinase. And it is it seems to be a major hub that coordinates neuroprotective functions of of the microglia. 
And uh, she's shown by targeting it and overactivating it with various means, you can improve the removal of amyloid beta and limit Alzheimer's related disease. <laughs> she's also shown it in a, in a model of, of multiple sclerosis too. And so we, we have various targets that we're, we're going after in, in hopes of identifying multiple things that can move forward into translational tests and and hopeful therapeutics in the next you know 10 to 20 years so that seems pretty significant that discovery we were super excited about it it, it was a it was a fantastic project um it was ambitious and um a little daunting but it was it was amazing the perseverance and you know kind of all the effort that hannah put into it to to take it across the finish line you know, you, you submit these papers and you get a ton of things back for in the review process where, you know, they're critiquing, you know, how you can make it better and, and not. And um, it was it was a really exciting time. And uh, yeah, it's I still remember like the first time she came in and showed me the images of the amyloid levels and just the, you know, the pure excitement that comes with right. that to see, you know, that that eureka moment and um yeah, it's, it's awesome. I bet. I mean, you're you're basically, you know, getting a look at what might be a mechanism that leads to Alzheimer's or could lead to intervening to mitigate or cure Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's it's been interesting to kind of we've kind of branched out from from her initial studies. Um, work we're doing with Bill Petrie and in, in NeuroCovid suggests that this same sick molecule that um, is involved in Alzheimer's disease is also um, acting up uh, in a dysregulated fashion in microglia in um, in NeuroCOVID, at least in some of our early mm-hmm. studies. So we've kind of we're also working with uh, Taji Harris down the lab. She's looking at it in terms of a parasitic infection of the brain, mm-hmm. and it's 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 been kind of exciting to see how focal this one pathway is in terms of orchestrating these important immune cells in the brain. So when you're in the course of discovering these mechanisms in this molecule, do you have a sense of how far down the path you are? Like, do you have a sense of, gosh, we are just knocking at the door to figuring out the biomechanics of Alzheimer's or no idea if we're close or not. We don't know enough yet to know we are really close to making a huge breakthrough. Does that question even make sense? Yeah, no, it it definitely makes sense. I th- I think the way that we approach it is that, you know, once once we kind of get a, a center point in the pathway, we try to go immediately try to go upstream or downstream of it to identify what is other factors are coordinating it. Um, and and our thought there is not always the first molecule that you figure out that's important in the pathway is gonna be a good drug target. Um, so we might find out by, you know, targeting it everywhere, it might play an important role, say in the kidneys, mm-hmm. but by going upstream and downstream, you know, we can hit on the unique players that only hitting them could still bring about the activation of say sick, the beneficial without, you know, causing any issues or collateral damage mm-hmm. um, in any beneficial roles that it would play. So y- you don't like, you don't necessarily like know it's like a slam dunk right, right. away because um, I mean, just like the discovery, there's a lot of unknowns and surprises in biology 
um, once you start targeting it globally. Right. So you're the principal investigator, so that means you lead a lab. Can you describe for uh, folks what it's like to lead a lab? I mean, this is a team sport, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's in my opinion, it's, it's the best job ever. Um, and you said team sport, and I kind of, you know, I approach it kind of like a coach in the sense that, mm. you know, every day, um, you know, trying to to help people and the trainees with identifying their strengths and weaknesses and building on those. So, you know, some of the trainees come in with really fantastic, creative ideas, um, but really need to refine their surgical technique. And and others come in as fantastic writers, but don't have the, at the time, the confidence to, to really think outside the box. And so, and it's nice because everybody has their different strengths and weaknesses, and we can kind of pull um, from each of those to, to have a bigger effect as a collective. And um, it's a lot of fun to see. Um, it's also, you know, it's, it's even more fun to see them, you know, move on to bigger and better things. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing where where some of these trainees have, have gone, you know, leaving UVA. And hopefully we can get a lot of them back as, right. as faculty or as doctors, because they're just incredible. And so you have a mix of undergraduate, graduate students, and postdocs? Yeah. So right now, about eight undergraduates, eight graduate students. Wow. Um, some some of those individuals are co-mentored. So one of our trainees is co-mentored with Bill Petrie on NeuroCOVID. Mm-hmm. And then we have a another uh, co-mentored student uh, with Rich Price, where we're trying to develop new therapeutics to target some of the pathways that we have identified and then we have uh, two postdocs. And then we also have a couple, uh, la- we have three lab techs. And you said that your mentor treated you like family. Is that how you try to treat the people in your lab as well? Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, 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 it's so rewarding and fun to be, you know, part of their lives. It's, it's, it's a unique, you know, mentee mentor relationship in, in that it's like a true apprenticeship where, you know, you, you see them come in and, you know, they're just bright eyed and excited and, you know, want to cure various diseases and to see them leave the lab and, you know, have been so accomplished and also to have had a lot of fun and, um, you know, to make huge discoveries and get recognized for that is just, you know, there's, there's nothing better than seeing your people do well. Um, So just the last uh, couple of questions. I uh-huh. understand you have a spirit week in your lab. Yeah. What does spirit week in your lab look like? Yeah. So this this started uh, a couple of years ago. It's it's basically like your high school spirit week. <laughs> so, you know, some of the days like pajama day, wacky hair day. Um, um, and the one day they got me in the sense that it was like um, what my midlife crisis right now is is, is Air Jordans and Nikes. Um, so they, they said like it was going to be like, fire shoes day, like, you know, shoes that were really cool. And I came in and I saw the first student and I was like, oh, your shoes are okay, but you look really dapper today. And then I, I realized that they were all dressed like me. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, it was Dr. Lucan's day. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And then the pajama day that, 
we didn't think ahead and but so there was a um public defense in our department one of the other lab students was getting their phd and this is a pretty formal affair yeah and um you know we wanted to be there to support it but we completely forgot that it overlapped with our pajama day so we showed up (laughs) as a whole lab in pajamas and 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 that's kind of become a tradition where now whoever's graduating gets to decide what we dress up as a lab it's kind of been fun that way Last question about your sneakers. So I understand mm-hmm. you've developed a tradition around research publications that involves your sneakers. Yeah, it it kind of um I, I don't know. It's it's so much work goes into these papers and grants. I feel like it's it's important to like reflect on getting across the finish line. And um, you know, it it started uh a couple of years ago. I like I said, it's 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 my midlife crisis. There could be worse things. Um but yeah, uh, so when I when I got tenure, I got the UVA Dunks, which were oh nice, the sh- yeah, the shoes they made um, when we won the national championship. And then I try to get something that like kind of reflects the the work that was done. So when we published the sick paper, you know, it kind of became a joke. There's a song out there by uh, Travis Scott and Drake called "Sicko Mode," and. Um, yeah, Travis Scott ended up making a, a pair of, of Jordans. So I ended up getting those to kind of remember sick and the time that went into that. Um, yeah, it buys me a lot of street cred with the, the students. <laughs> uh, well, John, thank you so much um, yeah. for spending some time with me. You know, I often talk about UVA being great and good, and I usually explain what I mean with examples. And you're a perfect example of what I mean when I say UVA is great and good. So thank you for everything that you're doing. And thank you for spending time with us. My pleasure. And thank you for that. That means a lot to me. Inside UVA is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the President at the University of Virginia. Inside UVA is produced by Jaden Evans, Arian Ballou, Mary Gardner-McGee, and Matt Weber. Special thanks to Maria Jones and McGregor McCants. Our music is Turning to You from Blue Dot Sessions. You can listen and subscribe to Inside UVA on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about the life of the university.